Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this week's Talking Biotech podcast by Calabra. Crop protection. When we hear the words, people don't always understand what that means. Now, all the things that are colloquially referred to as the hyphen acides, right, like pesticide, fungicide, herbicide, all those things are typically looked at in a bundle called uh, pesticides, right? Because they're all pests, whether you're an, an insect or a weed or a fungus, you're a threat to the farm, you're a threat to farm production. And after all, most of the things we grow on our farmland don't really belong there. These are uh, lands that belong to different plants. So we're kind of aliens on their soil. And as such, it requires us to protect them in specific ways from different threats. Now, crop protection strategies is really the scientific way of talking about that universe of asides, right? Synthetic molecules or biological molecules that solve some sort of problem that make profitable farming more likely. And this is good for farmers. It's good for consumers, right? It's a great stuff if you can control the aspects of farming that limit your production. The problem is, is that some of these asides historically, like DDT, have had some secondary collateral effects, uh, tertiary effects, other effects off target. And this led to not only banning those products, which is what should have happened, but maligning those products and more broadly aligning the field of crop protection in general. That anytime you talk about crop protection strategies, uh, people get a little bit nervous that you're creating something that kills an insect. So what's it doing to me? But the reality is, is that crop protection strategies have gotten so much better where tiny amounts over an entire acre are enough to control a fungal or even in some cases an insect pest. And they're getting more specific, meaning in the old days you had the spray plane fly over and use a broad spectrum insecticide that might harm most of the insects that are there, including the beneficials. Today's strategies are targeted and work specifically to control the insects that threaten the crop. The problem is that new strategies are slow to come about for lots of reasons we'll discuss today with our guest. But our guest also will tell us about a new generation of products that are based upon biological molecules that should offer safety and efficacy for farmers and consumers. And today our guest is Todd Hauser. He's the co-founder and CEO of Trillium Ag. Welcome to the podcast, Todd. Thank you, Kevin. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's really great to have you on because uh, people who know me know that I have a soft spot in my heart for RNAi approaches, and we'll talk all about that as we go. But I think the average person doesn't appreciate the concept of crop protection. They kind of think the produce is perfect and the plants look healthy as I drive through the Midwest. And so what do we need to protect crops from? Well, you know, I also do appreciate a produce aisle that looks like it's filled with healthy and uh, um, healthy uh, plant, uh, fruits and vegetables that look like they've just been picked. So, um, but really, crop protection—it comes down to protecting crops from invasive weeds, insects, diseases that would be um, 
viral or fungal in nature and sometimes associated with those uh, insect pests. I don't know that this translates well for the average person, but how are we protecting crops now from things like microbial uh, damage or insect damage? Well, traditionally, there's been uh, the use of small molecules, uh, insecticide, fungicides, and, and pesticides, herbicides that are quite effective. And there are also workhorses like on the biological side, the cry and BT, uh, the BT complexes that are used in uh, biologicals. But there are many reasons why each one of those have advantages and disadvantages. We've got environmental and safety concerns for small molecules and some systemic safety concerns for um, off-target effects. And there's regulatory pressures working against small molecules. On the biological side, the industrial workhorse of the last 10 years has been the BT cry complex, but it's starting to lose efficacy as insects have build resistance to it. And how much does this cost every year? I mean, in terms of uh, farms, in terms of consumers, the whole bit, how much is this damage in terms of dollars and cents? Or, or do we even know? I don't think we even know an actual number, but it's hundreds of billions of dollars. And it's, it's enough to affect our domestic product. I mean, agriculture is over a trillion dollars, uh, its contribution to our U.S. economy. It affects the profits that are fellow farmers and growers have, and it affects the prices we all pay at the grocery store and in all related commodities thereof. So it's a big enough issue we should all be concerned. The, there are certain insects and in fall armyworm, for instance, that most growers are, are, are well aware of. It's a $37 billion problem. Some of the smaller insect problems like Western cornworm are approaching $2 billion in damages. Yeah, it's, it's pretty huge numbers that we're talking about. And you mentioned some of the strategies that we use already, things like BT and how they're starting to lose a little efficacy, even things like glyphosate losing some of their efficacy. And is, is really the emergence of resistance the main problem? Or are there other considerations to either biological or synthetic crop protection strategies that really say we need new ones? Yeah, that's an interesting point. So for synthetics, safety and specificity, um, whether it's environmental toxicity or off-target effects to other insects, is really the primary concern. There has been a, a historical use of small molecules, many of them banned these days, that were quite effective. And on the biological side, it really is about building up more tools. We think we've learned from the last decade that the BT and the, and the biologicals that are offered by bacterial toxins do offer some um, industrial and economic advantage, but we need to strengthen and broaden our use of what nature provides us. And one of the things I was thinking about in preparation for today is that it really seems to be a long time span between the time the last good strategy came out for an insecticide and then the next new one or a fungicide or herbicide, whatever. These things are not flying out of R&D at a regular basis. And is it because it's just so hard to find something with safety and efficacy and specificity, or is it just the regulatory environment is so complicated and hard to navigate that companies don't even bother to go there? Well, those both are contributors to the lack of uh, diversity in our approaches. Uh, I think there's also an economic um, justification for when you have something that works, you want to maximize your investment and the time you spent in development and cost you spent deregulating and getting to market. So 
it's easy to overuse and, and stay focused on that one particular approach. And that's led us to, uh, I think we've learned our lesson as an industry, uh, an issue with acquired resistance. Single modality overuse has been uh, something that has been embraced over the last 15 years. And, and now growers and developers and even regulators have decided, okay, it's time for multimodality to take over. So we don't run into these acquired resistance problems anymore. So the whole industry is stepping up the level of innovation. So I think you'll see over the next 10 years, agriculture looking not a lot like it has in the past, where it's slow innovation. It's going to be fast. It's going to be exciting. And there's a lot of new things coming down the way. Yeah, that's a conversation I have all the time with people who say, we don't like, uh, let's say, the genetic engineering approaches because, you know, look at glyphosate. There's glyphosate resistance everywhere. And look what happened. And they said it wouldn't happen. And back when that first came out, I could I could not find a scientist who would say there will never be resist, uh, a resistance to it. Everybody said, yeah, eventually, you know, you use it enough on, an, on organisms that reproduce quickly, you'll find a way around your, as you say, single use modality. That's a great term. And if we were to have changed, you know, if we, if we went backwards to 1990 and said, we're coming up with these new tools and let's not introduce one until we can introduce five. You know, would that maybe have solved a lot of the problems that we're seeing right now? If you could, potentially, yes. I would say going back in time, we wouldn't have been sophisticated enough in terms of our understanding of, of the biologicals and what's capable and how well we could develop and even scale to produce those so farmers could use them. I don't think the industry was quite ready. The industry is ready. The industry is stepping up and embracing biologicals and multimodality and these multimodality products that are in development couldn't have been developed 10, even 20 years ago, or 20 or even 10 years ago. And this is an interesting concept, kind of on the heels of last week's podcast, where we talked about natural products that were being used in, as human therapeutics, and that biology has a way to make lots of molecules that are aimed at biology, that they we generate lots of metabolites that have um, effects on other targets, uh, intended or not, uh, intended by evolution, you know, uh, in quotes. So how do we transition away from synthetic chemical compounds that are targeting specific pests and pathogens to identify uh, biological molecule-based approaches? Well, I think different companies, different scientists have different approaches. Here at Trillium, we embrace nature. We let nature be our model, our guide, it teaches us um, how to address a specific challenge, and these challenges are diverse. And as you mentioned, nature and uh, biologicals have answered this question for us already. Nature is adapted and is in a constant war between um, different organisms affecting each other, plants protecting themselves from using defensins against insects and fungal infections. Um, those evolutionary tools are available to us to embrace and strengthen and invigorate in our protection against crop pests in a safe manner. And that's how we view it at Trillium. And so we embrace a natural philosophy that, um, that uh, focuses on mechanisms that exist in, uh, endogenously in, in plants and insects. And when we talk about natural compounds, we can think about things that plants naturally produce like nicotine or caffeine or a, a whole series of different antimicrobial peptides, all kinds of things like that. 
But one one approach that's been really interesting has been the idea of using RNA itself. And we in the in the days of RNA vaccines and and how we're starting to have this become more of a common part of our our daily parlance. How can RNA be used as a crop protection strategy? Well, plants and animals and even humans are that they have a natural mechanism as part of their immune system that recognizes and destroys and attacks viruses that invade our cells. That system, you can think of it like maybe like a pair of scissors that uses the virus to go and and clip and cut that, that viral genome so it can't affect our cells as much. But that action of having scissors is very natural. And if you can figure out how to guide those scissors towards maybe a disease gene for human use or an insect gene that is required for fitness for a certain insect, you can utilize that natural immunological mechanism to induce a commercial outcome that is safe, transient, and um, fitting with nature. Yeah, so this is really cool. So just to kind of add to what you've already said, just to get everybody who is maybe not up on the technology up to speed, is that there are um, mechanisms that are innate in eukaryotic cells that identify RNA that doesn't belong there. And things like, um, or especially RNA that's double-stranded, RNA that looks like a potentially viral RNA. And then it does this and then takes a little snapshot of that RNA and then uses that to guide the scissors going forward. Or, you know, and plants do this very well with any kind of RNA you may add. So in our laboratory, we may want to turn down the function of a given gene. We introduce a backwards copy of that transcript or maybe a double-stranded copy of that transcript. and then. Uh, or a piece of the transcript. And now anywhere that shows up being expressed, the cell will mobilize its surveillance mechanisms to destroy that RNA, which means we shut down gene expression. We we break the central dogma right in the middle. And so this is the approach that uh, Trillium has really uh, been using in a rather novel way. But can you talk more about how RNAi strategies have been used previously? to uh, solve problems with pests and pathogens. Yeah, so the Nobel-winning canonical RNAi trigger is a DSRNA, as you mentioned. Now, DSRNA has, um, was well-recognized and developed in 1999 and even won the Nobel in 2006. And it's a phenomenal tool for inducing RNAi. It's um, rather specific in its short form and less specific in the long form used in agriculture. And it's been readily proven that it can induce this mechanism in a whole series of insects, whether they're Lepidoptera, Hemiptera, or Coleoptera, and even in plants, as you mentioned. The trick has been getting it to those organisms specifically. Yeah, this has been something that was really, for those of you who are plant enthusiasts, is a story you should know and really understand how RNAi worked and uh, and really was discovered, the, at least the phenomenology was described first in plants in terms of mechanism uh, in a paper by Limbo at all, ni- to, to 1993, I think it was, where they really described what was happening um, just as a hypothesis, which was super cool. I don't know. No. That they, yeah. Do you know this paper? Yes. Yeah. Do you think they ever got appropriate credit for? No, no. <laughs> and there, there are several other entities like that. It was, you know, it's like anything when something's discovered it. It's uh, it takes a team and different perspectives, and it's it it evolves and emerges slowly. It's not like all of a sudden. Yeah, well, and all the old work by Rich Jorgensen's group in petunias, where they you know you you overexpressed a uh, 
a gene to cause the white flowers to become purple, but yet they would become purple with white sectors or never got purple. And, <laughs> and, and something weird was going on. So, it, but it all ties together that when something is there too much, the RNA is present in high levels or forming double stranded complexes. It now opens the gate for the surveillance systems to shut it down. And all of this goes back a little ways now, but it's really a, has been relatively underutilized as a, a crop protection strategy. So when we get back on the other side of the break, we'll talk more about that and mostly how Trillium has used the novel RNA approach in solving problems in crop protection. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast by Calabra, and we'll be back in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Calabra, the data monitoring platform designed to reveal research insights and streamline reporting across your organization. With Calabra, you'll gain a comprehensive view of your research workflows, simplifying scientific IP governance, compliance, and analysis. Visit Calabra.app to learn how you can transform your research process today. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast by Calabra. And we're talking to Todd Hauser. He's the co-founder and CEO of Trillium Ag. And we're talking about RNAi strategies and crop protection. And there's been a lot of great examples over the last decade anyway, where at least we've seen some levels of efficacy from approaches that have involved clay particles or Higgs or all kinds of other approaches. And could you give us some ideas where RNAi has, has been used successfully and really sets the table for what you do? Yeah, you know, I appreciate that. There's there's a whole industry that has emerged over the last 15 years that has provided different tool sets utilizing RNAi, generally based around dsRNA. And they have found, with the exception to the coleopter insect, um, it would, would require an excipient for delivery. And those excipients are sometimes uh, cationic material like clay or VLP proteins from viruses or lipids uh, that can encase or encapsulate the RNA to give it what's called a better bioavailability. Bioavailability really means stability, specificity, and delivery to cells. Now, historically, RNA is very effective, and the bioavailability features that have been offered offer protection of that cargo. And that does go quite a bit towards the success of RNAi. There are some missing factors that have prevented its full commercialization, which would be the rest of the bioavailability requirements, stability being one of them, delivery specifically to certain cells is the other, and being able to control that when you have diverse organisms in agriculture, which are profound, different insects with different digestive systems, plants, all of them opposite with opposite needs. And one solution couldn't fit all of them. And that's really some of the problems with commercializing RNAi. Yeah, you mentioned the question of stability. And I, I think I've just had a little bit of anecdotal, you know, ear to the rail and talking to people about this over the years where they say, oh, it works great in the laboratory, but you take it out in the field and there's all kinds of problems with keeping RNA cold. And you know, how do you keep uh, it? It's a very unstable molecule inherently. So how do you package it? How do you keep it so that it actually gets into the cell itself? So how many of, what are some of the major barriers in uh, it, that specifically with respect to things like stability? Well, the number one barrier is just simply to survive the digestive process in a particular insect. For instance, 
uh, Lepidoptera, which is about 80, 85% of all relevant crop pests, have an alkaline gut that dissolves just about everything it ingests. And the ability for a biological to survive that, it's, it's a challenge. And so surviving that and then getting into the gut cells and through the paratrophic matrix and all the barriers the insect already has, it's, it's, it represents a design challenge and it's been an inhibitor for even having any biologicals that are RNA in nature for that entire class of insects. And on the opposite side of the spectrum, stink bugs, the hemiptera, are acidic and they have equal challenges, but on, a, on using a whole different set of tools. So solving those stability problems is a deep and complex challenge. And the, the tools that required that are required to provide that stability in and during ingestion is the number one challenge. And then getting into the cells and releasing into the cells and having a specific and potent uh, activity is uh, the last part of that bioavailability. Yeah, so that kind of gets into my next question. I was going to ask, why not just have the plant express the RNA, uh, the RNAs or the antisense RNAs against the pests that target them? And is it really just because you can't do a one-size-fits-all with respect to how the, the insects digest or, or something like that? Well, in general, even RNA in, expressed in a plant and then ingested there is no mechanism in that scenario for that RNA to get into the target cells of the, or of the insect. Now, certain classes of, in, of insects like Coleoptera, Western corn rootworm, for instance, do have a receptor-like activity that does bring dsRNA in from exogenous sources like in plant expression, which is why we have seen Monsanto successfully develop and deregulate an RNAi product for protecting corn root from WCR. But those insects are limited and the rest of the insects of Hemiptera and Lepidoptera do not have receptors to bring in exogenous RNA that is what we call naked RNA. Yeah, and that, that's a really important point. It is kind of interesting though that this has been we uh, this is not a new technology. And we've talked about, you know, the the Nobel Prize was awarded in 2003 uh, to Mello and Fire for work in C. elegans. This is a long time ago now, 20 yeah. years. So why has it taken so long for this very potent mechanism to be exploited for crop protection? Well, that's a, you know, a complicated and storied answer, I suppose. But I think we can, we can all reflect back on the enthusiasm and excitement that surrounded that Nobel and the level of investment and commitment that went towards DSRNA and that, that singular approach and the, that optimism and expectation that it was going to work commercially, was um, impenetrable to someone who might say that it wouldn't. And it took many years for that to become a realization <clears throat> in the industry and for the industry to finally realize that that approach, no matter how exciting, was missing some key technologies to enable it. Yeah, so we've talked about what this technology is and some of its limitations, but what is Trillium doing to make this work? Yeah, I appreciate that question. So you know, I've been in RNAi for 23 years and started in the human uh, pharmaceutical side, developing a more specific RNAi for, for human diseases. The approach that we've taken at Trillium is based on the technology developed in the biopharmaceutical space. Interestingly, we, this technology completely reinvents how RNAi is induced. It's the same machinery 
but we went about achieving that machine or activating that machinery in a very different way. The RNA that we use is a single-stranded, self-folding sort of origami nanoparticle that folds on itself into a tiny spherical structure that forms the basis of what is considered to be an idyllic bioavailability size. From there, using this unique structure that we had developed, we actually further developed it with some what are called aptamers that are displayed on the outside of the RNA that are designed to collect certain proteins that exist in the cell. Now, when we collect the proteins on the surface of this RNA particle, we can then program that particle to have physical attributes by design. That allows us to design this RNA, protect it, and with the protein surface, target it towards a specific pest in a way that's never been done before. I see. So the aptamers come from you. You're actually creating these proteins that can potentially protect or target this RNA nanoparticle to a specific type of, uh, uh, let's say, vulnerability in the pest organism. Right. A lot of times our RNAs are expressed in a cell and then recruit and bind to the surface of the RNA, the endogenous proteins that the plant is already making that are specific to that particular pest's receptors in their gut. And so we'll embrace natural proteins when in certain compositions and other compositions we'll have completely exogenous proteins being expressed that build that surface that I mentioned. Yeah. So you have a, a mechanism that allows a RNA complex to get to where it's supposed to go and still excite the RNAi surveillance system, but not be degraded by all of the regulatory mechanisms that target RNA, especially foreign RNAs. Is something, is that working like that? Yes. And it's actually, um, there, we, we went a step further. So because of this biopharmaceutical origin, if you were to compare the what's called the trigger technologies between the two, agriculture uses typically a 400 base pair RNA, maybe 270 to 400. And those nucleotides have specificity that can be predicted in based on their homology to a target gene. If you shorten it, you get a much higher specificity. And specificity means hitting a certain gene and not others. Our technology is based on a 19 to 21 nucleotide specificity. Even though it's a very long transcript, it actually has, uh, the trigger is very short and is limited in what it can produce. So it's a very pharma level of, it's a pharmaceutical level precision that we're bringing to agriculture in this tool. And when you talk about specificity and precision, does this mean you're not only having precise targeting to a specific gene, but you also can look for variations that would help you separate pests from non-pests? Correct. We want to protect off-target insects. Yeah, so that's pretty cool. So what are the priority targets right now? Well, we're going for the areas in the market that growers care about the most and also have traditionally been what's called recalcitrant to this, this mechanism. And so that is Lepidopteras, fall armyworm in particular, uh, Hemipteras, the stink bug classes, and even some acquired resistance uh, on, on WCR. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Because that, I mean, people who don't know fall armyworm, check back through the podcast series. We've got 
a number of uh, podcast episodes on it. And it is an increasing problem, both in the industrialized world and developing world. So that's a great target. And what have been the results so far? Well, we've got first of its kind biological activity in Lepidoptera and fall armyworm. Uh, it's approaching commercial parts per million, and we expect to be there by middle of next year. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So, so what is the approval and deregulation process look like? Because you know, I know what it is when you make a synthetic chemical. It can take a long time and take a lot of money. But is RNAi something because it is biological and something that's mimicking a natural process is something that uh, maybe gets a little less scrutiny? It is. There's a lot of uh, compositional matter that we build in, which is called generally, generally regarded as safe composition. So the proteins, we, if they're natural and they have no effective animals and humans, they, they aren't scrutinized to the same safety and risk analysis that you would typically see. For a topical product, you can expect about a three to five year deregulatory process. And for Implanta, and I, I should mention that our technology does both Implanta and Explanta uh, production. So as a GMO, it's still the same seven to 11 years uh, development. So um, it can take a while for some products to get to market. Yeah. So as an Explanta thing, so this is you, your formulation is created in a way that you can apply this to plants, like say, just spray it on, or is there some other type of delivery? that would be required to ensure that it gets in? It's just sprayed on. So our products are even in, whether they're topical or implanted, we do develop them in a plant cell-free um, bio manufacturing setting. So you can consider them all plant made. And so it, if we're making a topical, um, it's really just a matter of expression, storage, and use as a spray. And have you consulted with organic growers or uh, Omri to see if they may be able to sneak this thing under their tent because you, there you need a lot of strategies that you just don't have the same tools. And this might be able to be in that kind of gray zone that they may, or at least a subset of folks in that area may find palatable. Well, there's one thing I love about this platform and that's the diversity of it. The same methodologies can be used to embrace proteins that are natural and fitting for organic farmers or they can be used to em embrace and, and build exogenous novel protein capabilities that would, would not fit that category. So it's a tool set that can adapt to both markets. That's really cool. So, so if all goes well and everything runs perfectly and you fly through regulatory, when do these kinds of strategies might hit the field? We expect to have some, some on the field are in the field uh, products uh, within three to five years through partners and collaborators. There won't be direct Trillium to market products. At least that's not how we're planning things right now. Uh, so we embrace uh, existing um, big ag co co companies and their distribution models. And we hope to have these products on the market within three to five years and represent a new and exciting genre of biologicals. It is. It's really new and it's really exciting. I thought this was really neat when I saw it and I, reading about it. And I thought, gosh, I wish I would have thought of this. <laughs> and and uh, it just tells me I got to work a little harder and faster. Um, but what are some of the other strategies or potential products in the pipeline? Well, we've got some, I would say, really excited products and developments in R&D that we haven't discussed or even released that get me excited because it would bring a new tool set 
to protect growers in, in a tool set that could, could go to market faster than your typical exogenous product. So we're really looking and keeping an eye on new product categories and capabilities that really benefit growers in their war against pests that are whether they're insect-based or um, plant-based weeds or fungicides. I love the approach of all of this. The big question for me is that it seems like a tough nut to crack. Um, you know, we small we farm small acreage specialty crops where I am, and uh, in our place, you know, we, we have to store bags of fertilizer that may have to be in storage for a year, or, or you know, our, our well water is pH you know eight. You know, all these other weird variables that are things we have to push back against. So, are these things even a bigger consideration when you start looking at a biological solution? It is a big consideration, and it is the last sort of last mile of the technology for having it be uh, commercial worthy. The effect that Trillium's technology embraces fully RNA and protein interactions has allowed us to not only address some of these bioavailability challenges on delivery towards our target organism, but also some of those storage attributes and to improve the traditional characteristics that might surround a biological in its um, intolerance to room temperature or its inability to deal with different pHs of well water. So we do want and focus on product designs that free the grower from having to be concerned about those traditional biological uh, dependencies of cold chain and or well water composition. So in the end, this should be a product that's stored in a bag in a barn for years. Well, this is all really great. If people want to learn more about Trillium Ag, uh, maybe on social media or, or somewhere online, where would they look? Yeah, you can find information about Trillium at www.trillium.ag. Well, very nice. Well, Todd Hauser, thank you very much for joining me today on the Talking Biotech Podcast. I wish you all the success in the world on this really innovative approach. And please promise you'll come back when uh, we can help talk about your product more as it hits the field. I look forward to it, Kevin. Thank you very much. And as always, thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. You know, there's a lot of people out there who say we need to tear it all down, that the way we grow crops is wrong, that we need to be taking approaches that are completely away from synthetic chemistry. But could technology really be our solution? And I'm a firm believer that approaches such as what Trillium Ag is doing are the approaches that will ultimately solve these problems, that we can't turn back the clock to when production was low and more intense on the land. And now we can come up with elegant molecular solutions to solve some of our major crop protection problems. This is a Talking Biotech podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.